Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Our Two Cents with MBA. I'm Jackson Hadaway, Executive Vice President of Member Services, and we're glad you can join us. In this episode of the podcast, we discuss a topic that is kind of sneaking up in the background for many banks, and that is the LIBOR transition. The London Interbank Offered Rate will, at the end of December, no longer be allowed as a reference rate for future financial transactions. For many banks, this seems to be an almost irrelevant issue as it is largely discussed in the context of larger financial markets or corporate transactions. However, many lending products, participations, consumer loans, corporate loans, somewhat rely or directly rely on the LIBOR rate. And it's important that we all understand how the transition will take place and what new reference rates we should be looking at. So for this episode of the podcast, we invited Chris Rockers, a partner at Hush Blackwell specializing in corporate finance and transactions, to join us. Chris understands and is working with banks on the LIBOR transition as we speak. And while this topic does get very deep, it's important to take away one simple message. If you have not begun to examine your portfolio and your participations to identify where LIBOR may or may not currently be embedded in the structure of what you do, the time to begin that process is now. So with that, sit back and enjoy this interview with Chris Rockers. Thanks, Jackson. Um, I joined the firm a long time ago. I graduated from law school in 1984. Um, I've practiced with the firm since then. So this is my 37th year. Primarily, I primarily do commercial finance. Um, I work on really loans of all sizes. We, I do. I work on syndicated loans, banks investing in syndicated loans, um, agency uh, administrative agents, uh, community, you know, bilateral loans um, for regional banks and community banks, sort of all up and down, all up and down the, the spectrum. Well, and you're here to talk with us about maybe the most exciting topic that uh, anybody knows is coming down the pike, but one that, if you really step back and think about it for a second, has, has fallen to the background for a lot of people because of the COVID pandemic and everything we've been wrapped up in from PPP to EIDL. To throw another acronym out there, this one is LIBOR, L-I-B-O-R. And while, of course, a lot of our bankers are familiar with LIBOR, we certainly have an audience out there uh, that doesn't play in that space every day. So I was hoping that for our very intro moment here, you would kind of give us the, the basics on LIBOR, a quick overview of it. Uh, what is it? Why has it been used? Uh, what the value of it is and, and why we're transitioning away. And, and we can chop that up however you want. But if you'll give us the, the education version of LIBOR, I know our audience would appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Jackson. No, LIBOR stands for London Interbank Offered Rate. And it is a reference rate that is established by uh, multinational banks uh, that are that are that have significant presence in the London market, and it's a rate that the that banks uh, it's a forward-looking rate. The banks determine what they loan each other um, on an overnight basis, and so it's uh, the uh, it's trillions of dollars of of credit facilities are pegged off of a reference rate. The LIBOR as a reference rate. The problem with LIBOR is that it's really thinly traded. There's not a lot of action between the banks loaning each other on an overnight uh, unsecured basis in London. So the problem with that is, and I'm sure everyone's heard, um, is that it's subject to manipulation. Um, there's a group of banks in, you know, over 10 years ago, ended up getting um, some really significant investigations launched 
against them. And uh, they faced heavy fines. There were individuals that, at those banks that were involved in establishing LIBOR and, um, and, and the, the punitive actions were taking against some of the individuals. That's why we're stepping away. I mean, that's why there was a determination. There was a change in administration. Uh, the BBA administered LIBOR. Uh, that moved over to what's referred to as ICE um, and to, to administer it now. But uh, it's a, it, we're moving away from it. And, you know, it's not going to be too long when LIBOR will no longer be available. In fact, at the end of the year, December 31st, um, the bank regulators have indicated that no more original loans at LIBOR uh, are to be made. So we're quickly facing the deadline. I think that's one of the more interesting pieces of the puzzle, really. We've got a hard deadline out there. And like right. I said, it's been been almost smokescreened because of everything else going on in the world, which is understandable, but it's something that has to be addressed. And Yeah, it does. And it's part of, you know, it's really, if you think about it, the context of being, you know, putting, of documenting loans, it's one of the most fundamental changes that we've dealt with, that I've dealt with in my practice. I mean, over 38 years, we've never gone for, you know, a, a primary reference from a primary reference rate like LIBOR. And LIBOR was around when I first started to practice. And, you know, we've never moved from something like that to what is now much more of an unknown. And there are other options. And so that's, you know, that's part of the struggle. Yeah. And to that end, it, it almost feels from time to time, like when you're talking about LIBOR, you're really talking about this academic thing, even though it's foundational to lending practices and credit practices. It, it lives in this world of traders and big banks over in London that can manipulate the, the number and, and it, it affects that small group. But the reality is LIBOR shows up in a lot of different, different ways for institutions. So I was hoping you could take a second and discuss where does this rate start to show up for lending practices at banks, uh, particularly some of our smaller banks that may think that, you know, they're just, this is, this is going to happen in the background. It won't really be on their radar. Uh, they'll worry about it when it becomes a thing. Yeah, so part of it is, and you know, I've had some discussions with with some of my partners. We have a, a task force at our firm that um, deals with LIBOR and its demise and the transition to, you know, SOFR. We'll talk about in a minute. But um, you know, one of the things that we were talking about was how to look. We know how this affects big banks. Um, they make credit facilities. They're involved in credit facilities. They agent. You know, you end up with uh, transactions that are large mid-market, you know, over $100 million or over $50 million. And you end up, de banks dealing with this all the time. Um, many of the regional banks that we represent, almost all the regional banks that we represent, have uh, a significant uh, amount of transactions that implicate LIBOR. Uh, talk, and as, as I pointed out, I talked to one of my partners, and his point was, look, on community banks that I've dealt with, every community bank has some exposure. You know, it could be, you could have a participation in a club transaction to a local borrower that they may need, there may need to be more than one lender involved. Many of those are going to be set up with a live, with, with a, with a reference rate, uh, which today would likely be LIBOR. It may be an alternative between LIBOR or prime, but um, a lot of, or participations, you know, banks, buying participations from other banks that have a LIBOR rate. So um, there's, uh, it's fairly extensive in terms of what bank, what banks, even, 
you know, even smaller banks uh, have exposure to. So, mm-hmm. and anytime you're talking about something this deeply welded into the way that our financial system operates, it's important for people to just understand it. Um, you know, even if yeah, you're it really not, is. I get it every day. It is because that's the way credit transactions are priced. That's the way financial institutions. You know, that's sort of fundamental to how they calculate what their return on investment. And so when you think about then the transition, the hard stop that's coming, obviously there are banks out there that have made the transition or starting to make the transition, a few and far between, but they're there. Um, there are a lot of reference rates. You, you hinted at this a moment ago. You started to talk a little about SOFR, the secured overnight financing rate. But what's coming? What are we looking at since LIBOR? Yeah, we're, we're really looking at SOFR. I mean, SOFR, I know, there, there, are, there are other alternatives, but the 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 clients that I work with are almost universally, or I could say universally, looking at a SOFR, uh, transitioning to a SOFR, some sooner than others. I have, I'm working with, I work with a financial institution that is moving the vast majority of its portfolio to a SOFR-based rate beginning October 1st. That's, that is a faster timeline than you're going to hear from many, many institutions. Yeah, it is. And look, it is. And we still see, I still, I'm doing transactions right now. I'm working on syndicated transactions that actually, uh, that, that actually are continuing to use LIBOR. And I've had other, I have transactions that we start with SOFR today, new transactions. And, you know, we can kind of talk about what SOFR they're using. But they're using SOFR. Sometimes I had a transaction I closed a, uh, a month ago where a borrower was not comfortable with jumping in today at SOFR, but understood that the transition was coming. So we started out with a LIBOR-based rate, um, and then with a, uh, a hardwired fallback. We can talk about these fallbacks, but a hardwired fallback to SOFR. So they knew it was coming. They just didn't want to close the transaction today that started out as silver. I have another transaction I'm working on right now uh, where we are, in fact, uh, not including LIBOR as an initial reference rate rather than rather just going to SOFR. Hmm. So give us a little bit more of the what on SOFR. How did it come to be? What is it? How is it different than LIBOR? Yeah, SOFR, there's, there, if there's some fairly significant differences. Um, SOFR uh, stands for uh, the secured overnight financing rate. And it is a rate that is, that's, that's very, to be calculated on a very wide basis. So it's not limited in the same way that LIBOR is limited to a small subset of transactions uh, on an unsecured basis between banks, but rather it's what banks borrow overnight funds for, which are secured by U.S. securities. So because the, and because these, securities secure these overnight borrowings the SOFR is is it is a risk-free rate as opposed to a risk sensitive rate um, uh, or, or uh, a, a rate that, that's subject to credit risk um, if LIBOR was was not a risk-free rate it was a credit sensitive rate because it was unsecured among the large banks that loaned each other money overnight. Um, but SOFR is not that. It is a, it, it is a 
felt like a, 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 a risk-free rate. And as a result, the, it may behave a little bit differently than LIBOR. And, because, and that's something that I, I think that the, the Loan Syndications and Trading Association has done some analysis. And I think that they think that issue may be overplayed a bit. But the fact of the matter is that if, if there is a, an event that uh, disrupts the market, and think of March of not this past March, but March uh, March before with uh, with COVID, the market was disrupted. Uh, or the other market disruption that occurred was in 2008, 2007, 2008, when um, you know we ended up with the recession, the kickoff of the recession. The recession. So, but and and the concern is is that credit sensitive rates will behave differently than risk free rates. Risk-free rates may stay very consistent or may even drop, whereas credit-sensitive rates may rise, which means then that you're depending whether, whether you're using a, a credit-sensitive rate like LIBOR or like some of the credit-sensitive rates that we see coming in, or you use SOFR, there may be a, there may be a difference in the way those rates react. So that's a, a big difference. The difference in you know uh, forward-looking rates versus uh, looking at rates in arrears is also a difference. LIBOR is determined now, and it's determined over the next three months, or one month, or three months, or six months, um, and that's a forward-looking rate, which means then at the beginning of an interest period, you can determine what the interest, if you have this, a fixed amount of principal, you can determine how much interest is accrued at the end of that month. Whereas if you look at a rate that is that's determined in arrears, which daily SOFR is in arrears or prime is in arrears, is you have to go through the month because the rate could change at any day during the month, which means at the beginning of the month, you won't know how much you will owe at the end. That is quite the description uh, and distinction between the two. And it begs a question. So just generally, SOFR, like you said, that seems to be the option for people. Is it is, you know, you said there are other reference rates that you see kind of sneaking in. We certainly talk about prime periodically and bank. Right. Um, but but what are your thoughts? Is this the, the just the future for us in this? Industry? I, I think it is. And I think I think some of the differences are a bit overstated. One of the things, if you look at SOFR, one a SOFR option is term SOFR. And term SOFR is a forward looking rate. So it's going to be determined in the same way that uh, LIBOR is determined in terms of one month, two, six months, um, uh, 90 days. And it's determined based upon SOFR futures, which are traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Um, and so the Chicago Mercantile Exchange has, has developed or in the process of developing term, what is called term SOFR. So you may have 30-day term SOFR or 90-day term SOFR. And that will allow pricing at a term SOFR rate will be much, much more consistent with LIBOR. And I think the feeling is that that's where this is going to go. Right now, term SOFR is available and it was recommended um, by ARC. So and we already have jumped over the hoop of and it's, these loan documents, these, these loan provisions, are 
are a little complicated in the way they've developed in terms of how we fall back and what we're going to do now or what we're going to do next. And there was a concern that term SOFA wouldn't be available. And so, uh, but it is available now. I looked at a loan agreement yesterday, though, that even though it's available, it's not going to be implicated in a loan uh, unless the administrative agent in that transaction determined that it was it, it was feasible. Um, it was it was feasible for the bank for the agent to actually utilize the rate. So, um, you know, there's it, there's still some things that have to be worked through. Uh, on term suffer, but I see that's where I, I I ultimately see that is where it's going. Interestingly enough, term sofer is you know, overnight sofer is published on the um, on the New York Fed's website. Term sofer is actually a rate that's going to be determined by the CME, and banks will have to have a, a license to use it. Hmm. In the same way, they have to have a license to use LIBOR. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, and you mentioned a group in there that's that's kind of important that we haven't talked about, but just so everybody knows, this hasn't been done by a random group of people who said SOFR is great, ARC. Uh, if you could just give us a quick 30 seconds on who ARC is. Sure. All, uh, ARC is the Alternate Reference Rates Committee, which is a rate that has been established by the Federal Reserve. There are, there are members on that committee from a number of different constituencies, including the LSTA, the Loan Syndication and Trading Association which is the group that actually creates and manages the market to sell investments in commercial loans. It's a very, very thorough vetting process that's gone into this uh, transition away from LIBOR so far into SOFR. And so I I ask you to, to detail that just so everybody knows that this is from an institution at the kind of nexus of where this stuff's gonna live and land. So, you know, on the, the kind of highest level possible, SOFR seems like the right option. Term SOFR in particular seems like the future. You know, should banks look at other options? If not, what does the transition begin to look like if they're moving away from LIBOR? You mentioned you have one bank that's going live in October. Um, right. What does that actually mean? How do you start stepping forward away from LIBOR? Well, I mean, I think part of it has to do, and to just take a step back, there are the other rates, there are, Bloomberg's uh, Bisbee rate or Ameribor, those are credit sensitive rates. And we've seen a couple of banks do transactions on that. Part of the problem is, is it's gonna be, a, it's gonna, it's, there's an issue of consistency. So if you're a bank and you want to come up with a replacement rate, that's going to, uh, you are gonna create significant headaches for yourself in terms of managing your, your portfolio if you have a whole variety grocery list of rates that you use, um, I mean, the banks that I'm working with, they want everything as consistent as possible. That's why you know, when you start talking about reference rates and coming and falling back on a reference rate, you can negotiate with your borrower to determine what, what you're going to use, what the spread's going to be. Banks really don't want to do that because you don't want to have, you don't want your portfolio to be subject to four or five different reference rates. I mean, the, the consistency is really going to be important as a part of this transition. It's going to be important. I think, you know, part of you, you ask about transitions. So I think the transition is 
it's going to be a to determine what your exposure is. What what do you have to deal with? And, and you know, is this just uh, loans that you have to make indicate that they're earning interest at a different reference rate because you own a participation in someone else's loan, or you have loans that you have that that are actually based on LIBOR. Um, you need to figure out the scope in your portfolio. Um, in addition to sort of dealing with the scope, you have to start then plan on the fallback and the replacement rates, um, and then you have to implement. But um, the, the fallback is, it's, that is a bit of a moving target. One of the nice things about what ARC has done is that it's published, it's actually published language, both for syndicated loans and for bilateral loans, loans where there's a bank and a borrower and how those, and how those fallbacks work. Conceptually, the fallbacks began with what was called an amendment approach. So you would end up entering into an amendment that, uh, that once it's determined that we can no longer use those a, a LIBOR as a rate. We have to fall back to something that we can use. How that's how that's done. And the first approach was amendment approach, which would require that the documents be amended to do that. That could be done on a bilateral in a bilateral loan, generally by the bank making the decision and telling the borrower what they're going to do. On a syndicated loan, the amendment was really an amendment that was entered into by the agent and the borrower, and then the lenders had a negative consent right. So the required lenders could come back in, and within five days, if they did not like the rate that was we were going to everyone to transition to, they could amend, uh, they, they could elect to disapprove the rate if over 50% of the lenders did that. Really don't see that amendment approach being used anymore. We're sort of beyond that. At this stage of the game, we are either, like I said earlier, going directly into a replacement rate or we're hardwiring it into a, a specific fallback. It's term, it's term sofer. If term sofer is available, if not, if it is not available, it is um, daily sofer. Generally, that's typically how, how, how those, those fallbacks are being, being implemented. So do you, you just mentioned that fallback has kind of started to, or at least the, um, uh, in terms of your fallbacks where you've got an amendment approach, those have started to fall by the wayside. Banks are moving full in. If a bank hasn't started this transition, if they are just starting to scope it out, are they late to the party? Is it, uh, you know, time yeah. to get the, get the ball rolling as quick and as fast as possible? Yeah. And just so, just so you know, um, overnight and two week live work are going away at the end of the year. So December 31st, 2021 uh, will be the last day. June 23rd, 2023 where will be the, is the date when all of the other tenors of LIBOR, it, it's anticipated that they will no longer be reflective of the market. So at the end of the day, if you have something in LIBOR, you have to be able, you have to have amended yourself away from it or refinanced away from a LIBOR-based rate by mid 2023, we talked at the beginning of this discussion about the fact that regulators um, will not permit new LIBOR loans to be made after January 1, 2022. So I think the if you're if you've not really focused on this, 
I think the first step is to determine what is your exposure. That assessment is really step number one. And look, it's late, but it's it, 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 it's it's late, but that process should be started right away. Um, look at your portfolio and see what you have. Uh, the OCC has published a self-assessment tool, so you can go uh, to the OCC's website and pull in and download a self-assessment tool that will help you make those determinations. Yeah, and we'll link to that in the podcast description for all the banks out there that decide they want to go take a look if they haven't had a chance to do the exposure review yet, uh, yeah. but appreciate the direction to get there to that resource. Yeah, and then and secondly, I mean, I think the second step then is to plan for your fallback um, or what your or, or your your replacement rate. You know, the point I made earlier, I think it's it's going to be important. So for you to implement implement this in, in your process, you're going to want consistency. You're going to want something that is also consistent with what your peers are doing. Um, it's I, I think that that's important because part of it is. Part of the problem, uh, I think, that this whole fallback process is, uh, gives rise to is the fact that borrowers or banks or investors in loans, it's going to be much more difficult to analyze your return on those investments because now you're not only looking at sort of what you would traditionally look at in terms of credit underwriting or margin on top of LIBOR. You're looking at differences in the reference rates. So it's not going to be as easy as comparing apples to apples, comparing apples to apples like we had in the past. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And especially as our banks out there, you know, this, this topic will continue to roll and be a part of the conversation. But it's one, you know, I jokingly said at the beginning of this podcast that people, their eyes glaze over when you start talking about interbank finance rates and alternative reference rate committee. And it's, but it's critical. I mean, it's absolutely critical. And, and as you point out several times now, just reviewing your portfolio to see where you might be tied in, even if you're not aware that you are, or not, not overtly able to pin down those moments is a big step forward. And from that point forward, knowing how, how things are going to get originated and how you're going to have consistency, I think you're hitting on all the, the right notes for all the banks out there. Consistency is critical, if for no other reason than to make uh, the lives of your regulators and auditors easier, but certainly for your staff and your uh, determinations of profitability. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're going to have to, whatever you choose, you're going to have, you're going to, have to institutionalize it. And you're going to have to, you're going to have, have people that are, that it's going to have to be calculated on an ongoing basis. And, and, and you just, I think you, you raise, there, there's a risk that you're going to incorporate errors if you're looking at multiple different approaches. I think consistency is, is, super, is going to be super important. Chris, is there anything else you want to say about this transition or about LIBOR and SOFR and this whole topic area that we haven't covered at this point? Any final? No, I don't thoughts? think so. No, I don't think so, Jackson. I appreciate very much you inviting me to have, uh, spend a few minutes and discuss this point. Um, so hopefully your eyes didn't glaze over too much. <laughs> no, I think like so, like quite a few people out there, I jokingly said that there are many of us who will nerd out on this in a deep <laughs> And we're just glad we have experts we can talk to who help us make our way through it. So thank right. you for your time. And, thank you very uh, much. We appreciate Chris Rockers being with us from Hush Blackwell. Thanks.